Hi, and welcome to Tribe Talks, a series of curious conversations with entrepreneurs, practitioners, scholars, and business leaders who have diverse perspectives on how a human-first approach is better for business. My name is Lisa Hill. I'm a founding member of A Tribe Called Humans, a human collective for better business. My guest today is Taddy Hall. Taddy is a senior partner in innovation practice at Lippincott. Taddy is one of the world's leading innovation experts and works with senior executives across the world to improve innovation outcomes and drive growth. Taddy also co-authored with Clayton Christensen the best-selling book, Competing Against Luck, The Story of Innovation and Customer Choice. The book is the foremost authority on the jobs theory and gives a game-changing perspective of how companies can develop and market products and services which customers actually want and need. Teddy is a frequent speaker and writer, and his articles have been published in Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, Huffington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, and many more. What you might not know about Taddy is that his favorite breakfast food is ice cream, which is an interesting choice. Taddy, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us on A Tribe Talks. Thank you, Lisa, and thanks for the ice cream breakfast. I always like to hear that used in my opening lines. <laughs> my pleasure. I just, we'll talk about that another time, I think. So, just a weekend thing, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> it's still weird. Doesn't matter. Still weird. <laughs> So, as you know, at A Tribe Talks, we are talking to different experts around perspectives of how human-centered business leads to better business performance. But we're very curious about you, a very impressive biography that you have. But as a little icebreaker question, when do you feel most human, Taddy Hall? <laughs> so, when you ask this question, my head immediately went to... The wrong answer to the wrong question, which was, when you say, when you feel most human, it's a very different question to me than, than when you feel most alive. So I think if you ask me, like, when I feel most alive, that's an easy question, right? It's finishing the marathon, it's top of the mountain, it's that kind of stuff. But when you feel most human, the first thing I think about is vulnerability. And when do you feel truly vulnerable, when you feel also probably truly open. And if I sort of go in my head to those moments, it's usually something like being lost in the woods in Guatemala and just realizing. The cliche, of course, is looking up at the starry night and realizing how small we are. But I think I feel most human really when I feel most vulnerable. And in terms of business leaders, there's been a lot of conversation about vulnerability and showing your vulnerability. Yeah. How does that how does that make you feel? Well, I think in the business context, what it does is if you can experience vulnerability and survive it and emerge stronger, I think you almost learn the sort of the power, the beauty, the good that can come out of allowing yourself to be vulnerable. What it reminds me to do is to loosen our grip on certainty. We're all very comfortable when we're the experts. <laughs> and and we bring that expertise to whatever situation we're in. We're always less comfortable to be something other than sort of the smart person in the room. And instead of being the expert's mind, it's the 
Shunzu Suzuki's Zen principle of the beginner's mind, where you don't have the answers, but opportunity, innovation, whether it's personal growth or business innovation, it comes from the vulnerability and the beginner's mind that's associated with that when you release your grip on certainty. Is that an approach from what you've talked about that you aim with your clients who I know are C-suite, big brands, getting into that vulnerable state or moment? Is that something which is part of entering into a project or a conversation with you? So it's not something that I pursue explicitly, but I have another, I'd say like overarching or guiding philosophy when I enter into those kinds of conversations, which is, and I think it's true, is that I enter into those conversations convinced (laughs) that I can't convince you of anything. And the best I can do is to tell a story share an idea, create an experience of some kind that opens the space in your mind to believe something new. But I can't actually convince you of it. And so I think there's a lot to be said for a Socratic approach of asking questions. And the cousin of asking questions is telling stories and allowing people to find their own truth or find their own meaning. And so I do use an awful lot of storytelling. One of the reasons for that is just that narrative structure is the structure at which our brains create meaning and retain meaning, right? It's through stories, not through data points. And so stories are easier to hang on to, and they're easier metaphors for us to then create our own meaning with. But I feel if we can immerse clients and teams in stories that inspire them to think differently. And it's a bit of a trick. (laughs) I'm changing tacks here. If you're working with somebody who's, you know, pursuing innovation, we're just talking about ice cream or coffee. If you start talking to them about ice cream or coffee, they're immediately unconsciously and reflexively, they're going to engage their expert's brain. Mm -hmm. They're going to say, aha, coffee. I know a lot about coffee. I know how it's grown. I know how it's dried. I know how it's roasted. I know how it's brewed. I know how you keep it fresh. You know, And so once you do that, you close off pathways to discovery. And so if I want to help somebody do something in the coffee business, and they know much more about the coffee business than I do, the only thing I can do is actually take their somewhere from unfamiliar where they don't kind of have their guard up or their kind of their expert mind on standby so that they can look with fresh eyes or beginner's mind at something new or novel. And then if if I do my job, I'll tell the right story, articulate the right theory. Well, they say, hey, you know what? What you just described is happening over here in life insurance. <laughs> actually applies to one of the problems we're trying to address in the coffee business. And if they take it and bring it back and create their own meaning and then can explain the connection between the story or the theory and their business, then suddenly they own it. And I haven't convinced anybody of anything, but I do believe that kind of back to that feeling most human when vulnerability leads to openness, 
that creates the space in our minds to hear ideas that may be unfamiliar, but then to pull them into areas of our lives where we can use them practically. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. And we've worked together in the past and the jobs theory. So there's a lot (laughs) of clients. I'd like a bit of that jobs theory, but not always I've found necessarily understanding what that is. Yeah. So we know that we want to do innovation, which ideally customers actually want to need. How do you do that? How does that actually work about getting to the core of helping these often quite stuck organizations? Well, a couple of questions. It feels almost like wrapped up there. One is about sort of organizational readiness and the impetus for change. And I will say that if you don't have, if we're talking a big organization, if you don't have senior sponsorship, to think differently and act differently, it's honestly a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. And the reason for that is the following. And it's not because anybody's a a bad person or or anyone's not thinking properly. It's that, and this goes back to work that Clay and colleagues and I did a number of years ago. There's a million ways you can think about innovation or organize innovation or define innovation And depending on the context, different definitions might be more useful. But in this context, and often, I think about three types of innovation. And essentially, they they have a hierarchy of appeal (laughs) to the incentive structures of an established organization. And the most appealing is always efficiency innovation. Mm -hmm. How do we take cost out? Because it's very low risk. It's got a very short time frame to actually having a payoff. And it requires a minimal investment. Not always, but often efficiency innovation can be done without a huge investment. But even when it does require an investment, the linkage between, aha, if I put this, invest this money in these cost-saving measures, I can see how... I'm going to get the payout, right? So efficiency is always the most attractive. Yeah. And I guess the people it's shorter in time. Yeah, it's shorter, it's faster, it's cheaper. And, and look, it aligns with the incentives that already are established inside organizations. And so is the second most attractive form of innovation, which is what we call sustaining innovation, right? Which is how does Toyota make its Prius car a little bit better in 2022 than in 2021? Well, we got this software and we got this braking system and this bigger display. Those incremental enhancements, there's lots of incentives and you need efficiency innovation and sustaining innovation to keep competitive. But the third form of innovation is really an unnatural act for established organizations. And that's what we call market creating innovation because that essentially, it focuses on non-customers. It focuses on creating new markets. And because of that, it often doesn't leverage the resources that we have. It doesn't use the business processes that are already established to operate our existing business. And third is, it rarely responds well to the incentives that exist and the measures that exist inside large organizations when it comes to evaluating and setting priorities and allocating budget. And those budget dollars and those priorities 
almost always start with the core business and cascade from there. And so absent senior leadership saying, you know what, we've got to create a future that's different from our past. We need to create growth engines for our future that in some ways are discontinuous with the way that we're producing value today. Unless you have that commitment, and it could be on a large scale or just a small scale, right? Like, hey, we think there's an opportunity here. We think this business could be doing better. It doesn't have to be sort of transformation for the whole enterprise. I don't want to make this sound too grandiose. It can be on a small scale. But unless there is some degree of senior support, it's very hard to allocate the resources and have the patience to actually create something truly new. And we read a lot of stats about how many innovations fail and uh, yeah. don't see the light of day. Have you got a perspective about why that is? Why the failure rate is quite so high? Yeah. Yeah. And so really the father of the quality movement. So if you take things like Six Sigma or TQM, they all go back to Edwards Deming, who was in the, the founding father of the quality movement. He was an academic. I think he was originally, I don't want from the Midwest. I'm not sure if he's Michigan. His ideas really initially took root with the Japanese auto manufacturers in the 70s because the Americans were too arrogant to listen to him, honestly. <laughs> it's, in, it's in our blood. But in any event, they eventually got religion, but it took about 30 years to, to, to figure it out. But Deming said something. He said a lot of things that are interesting. Many of those things I'm not smart enough to track. But one of the things that he said, and I think this gets to a, a piece of the answer to your question, Lisa, is he said, every process is perfectly designed. Every process is perfectly designed to produce the outputs that it produces. Right? And so if you take that, which you could say, hey, that's just tautological or circular. But if you actually take it at... It, 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 it face value, what you can see in innovation is, wow, we've got a process of innovation in many places that is perfectly designed to produce highly inconsistent and generally crummy outcomes. <laughs> kind of surprising. What Clay often used to say is like, wow, you've got so many smart people very motivated, spending lots of time and money doing things that are unsuccessful. Like, what is that? And so I think where we went in our work was it's not a lack of effort. It's not a lack of brains. It's not a lack of, say, technology. And what it was a lack of or the absence of is a deeper understanding of what is it? <laughs> what is it that causes an individual, whether that's in their personal context or professional context? So B2C or B2B, what is it that causes an individual to pull a particular product or service into their lives for their personal use, for the use of their family, for the use of their community, for their use of their company? Doesn't matter. Companies don't make decisions. People do. And, and unless you've got algorithms that are driving decision making allocation, but even there, you've got people have to write the algorithms and put the assumptions in. So is it that causes someone to do that? And that's really where we spent the time over a long period of time to develop what's become known as jobs to be done or, or jobs theory, which is getting to that deeper level insight. And we often refer to 
the raw data of innovation. And, and so many of the large company clients I work with, they're so comfortable in Excel and PowerPoint and sort of that sanitized layer of understanding that has been abstracted, necessarily so, but it's been abstracted and modeled and filtered and packaged. And it all hides an underlying reality of us, of people. <laughs> Humans. <laughs> Going through our daily lives, whether that's our work life, our professional life. And as Clay used to say, he's like, People forget this. We said, God didn't invent data. (laughs) I I personally rarely invoke God as much as Clay uh, used to do. Clay talks about God a lot. We had lots of conversations about his interview and what God would ask him about when he got to heaven. That's a whole other conversation. That's another podcast. Um, But yeah, but, you know, um, Clay would say that God didn't create data. And that would be his way of sort of encouraging and motivating people to get those reports and things out of their way and get down to what I actually do call data, but I call it the raw data of innovation. And if we're going to be more successful with our innovation efforts, we cannot rely on those assumption-laden abstractions of Excel and PowerPoint and research studies we actually have to immerse ourselves in the raw data. And the raw data of innovation does take the narrative shape of an individual person struggling in a specific circumstance to make progress in their personal or professional lives. And when we take the time to immerse ourselves in those circumstances of struggle, where people have energy for progress, where something today is inconvenient, impossible, frustrating, inaccessible, not good enough, and they've got to put together some hack or workaround or compensating solution. Those are the weak signals of innovation opportunity in which successful innovators immerse themselves in order to create successful businesses. I can give dozens of examples of that because I'm speaking now at a theoretical level. But when you see it in action, it's incredibly powerful. And actually, it's the favorite part of what I do. So when you find that, is it that real tension? So you talk about it as a challenge, but the real tension in someone's life. And and how do you find that? Is that true? (laughs) How do you find it? (laughs) What's the funny? Yeah, and, and there's there's no one way, right? But Clay, I keep talking about Clay because I, I, I loved him and I miss him every day. But he had a funny habit, which is he was a dumpster diver. Uh, he would drive home from his office in Morgan Hall at Harvard Business School. He would drive past a lumber store and he would, from time to time, drive around back where they had a dumpster where they'd throw old scraps of wood. And he'd climb in there and fish around. He'd pull out pieces of wood. And he'd make stuff out of them. He made tables and furniture and and all kinds of things. But he made a sign in his office. I have a picture of it somewhere. And it said, anomalies wanted. And he put that there for a reason, which was always a reminder to everybody who came into his office that that's what you're looking for. You're looking for things that don't quite make sense or don't understand. I wrote a little piece in the Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago with a buddy of mine. And it talked about the difference between encountering the unexpected, somebody doing something that you didn't quite anticipate, like, why are they doing that? And the two possible reactions we have to it. One is, well, that's 
sort of stupid or that's just an isolated behavior. And the second bit reaction is that's funny. And so the piece really hinges around and the idea hinges on the difference between encountering the unexpected and saying that's weird, which carries a judgment and almost a dismissiveness to it with it versus saying, hey, that's funny. And bringing to it an openness, maybe there's something there that we need to understand. So it's really, I guess what you're saying, it really is digging into just the real humanness of us all. So you're kind of picking through the trash. <laughs> you're picking through the trash and people's life sounds so depressing. Sounds like a country Western song or something. But I can give you so many examples of that. And I'll just, a super simple one. Pepsi's built a multi-billion dollar business. And I've worked very happily with Pepsi around the world for, for many years. And I love working with them. And this was with our beverages team. The now chief marketing officer, Greg Lyons, used to run the brand Mountain Dew. But he and his team, and I give them full credit, but they spent time with like young guys because they had a couple. And this sort of gets to how you find this. They had a couple of funny data points, Lisa, that they used to say, hey, there's something funny going on there. Number one is, well, they knew that Mountain Dew was incredibly popular with these younger millennial males. Number two is they knew, again, from their big data and the Nielsen data that they received, they knew that Mountain Dew sales over-indexed in the morning versus other carbonated soft drinks. Okay, that's kind of interesting. And they knew that Mountain Dew was one of the top-selling SKUs in convenience stores, gas stations and, you know, drug stores. And so they put those things together and they said, no, what is it? Are these young men doing something in the morning with Mountain Dew? Like if you put those three kind of funny bits of information together and what they found, what they found was population of these younger guys who were getting up in the morning on their way to work, hated coffee, needed a little energy boost. They actually loved energy drinks, but they didn't want kind of a jolt. They actually wanted just to be, you know, in a good place. They loved Mountain Dew. And the orangey kind of lemon lime flavor felt, you know, vaguely, you know, morning appropriate. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And, but you know what? The idea of going into your office as a young guy and you're carrying like a 20 ounce or a one liter bottle of Mountain Dew, it just... It didn't smack of professionalism, you know? And so what these guys would do is they would stop at a 7-Eleven or some other convenience store and, and take a cup from the coffee dispenser or the fountain drinks, and they would buy a little carton of orange juice, and they would buy a Mountain Dew, and they'd make this little, you know, morning cocktail out of it. They'd make it themselves. And so what, what the Mountain Dew team had the presence to say was, gosh, is there something going on here that we need to understand more? And the long and the short of it is that story and that experience opened the space in their mind to think like, maybe, maybe there's an entire category that's neither juice nor coffee nor energy drinks nor traditional carbonated soft drinks that actually is built on this circumstance of, of transition or of transformation from being kind of catatonically asleep to being, that led to Mountain Dew Kickstart, which is now a multi-billion dollar platform 
that's incremental to their rock star energy business and their Mountain Dew carbonate soft drink business. And so by immersing themselves in these circumstances, they were guided by these data points, back to your question, of over-indexes with males, over-indexes in C-stores, you know, strong in the morning, and then saying, like, what's going on there? And having that kind of goes back to your very first question, that state of vulnerability, that loosening of their grip on conviction, that openness to seeing things that maybe they hadn't seen before that has led to that business. And I, I have, my kids will tell you, I have endless stories and they all take root in a specific circumstance of struggle. And the last thing I'll say on this is when these types of innovation succeed at scale in large companies, two things are present. One is, like this example, a simple, compelling story that you experience it as true and intelligible the first time you hear it, right? So I tell you this crazy story about, and it makes sense, like surprising, but I get it, right? And these successful innovations in large companies, they have a simple story that you experience as true on the one hand, and they then have a business case to say, you know what? This experience or this job to be done, as we would say, of transforming oneself from one phase to another, that's pervasive. And we can put some minimal dollar volume to that. And it is worth our taking that insight and faithfully turning it into a full-fledged idea and not, and this is what I think many marketers would do. Many of marketers would just ignore it. Yeah. A bunch of them would say, hey, you know what? We ought to make an orange flavored Mountain Dew, right? But it takes real presence of mind to say like, that's not it because Mountain Dew's got a lot of you know, associations from a workplace to and so they had the, 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 the discipline to do the hard work and to make the investments of actually creating a new category that has now been a, a monumental contributor to growth for the business and the brand. And that only comes by, number one, immersing yourself in that raw data. Two is like holding on to that insight and developing it to its fullest expression, not cramming it into your existing brand or business model where you say, oh, this is interesting. Let's shove it into Mountain Dew and out pops Orange Mountain Dew. That would have been easy to do. And it might have gotten a few like clicks and giggles and then it would have gone away. And that's what happens time and time and time again. You see organizations like full of pretty interesting ideas, but none of them can see the light of day. Because the incentive structures, and it's back to what you and I talked about earlier, efficiency, innovation, sustaining innovation, those things get pursued and market creating innovation like Mountain Dew Kickstart, that stuff gets crowded out. So, I mean, with so aligned, because you've got to start with the human and like you say, the raw data and it proves that it's better business. Now, That's right. question, you have worked across the globe on many, many innovation projects. Is there any specific work? Which is the best piece of work where I go, that's the best work of my life? I'm putting <laughs> you on the spot. Yeah, I'll probably punt a little bit on that one. But here's what I do believe. Yeah. I believe that the biggest business opportunities are to be found in solving the world's biggest problems. Yeah. And so 
if you look at the environment, if you look at energy, if you look at healthcare, th- those are the massive opportunity areas for innovation. And the work that I've done, either in my nonprofit work, I work with high impact entrepreneurs around the world, mentoring them in emerging markets. And many of them have built amazing businesses that I'm very proud to have some modest association with. And then with partners in Colombia, we've helped 15 large companies start small businesses. These aren't social enterprises, but they're successful small growth businesses. And many of them have taken root by focusing on non-consumption. So whether that is providing workers' liability insurance to handymen and craftsmen who've never had access to that kind of insurance, working with brilliant entrepreneurs who see opportunity by solving social problems yes. is where I see the expression of our ideas that generally get channeled through big corporations yeah. actually channeled into solving big problems. That's where it gets super exciting. So there's a lot there, Taddy. <laughs> if I'm going in tomorrow to run a team or I want to do innovation... <laughs> <laughs> I know what, yeah. but I'm looking to do some innovation. What kind of tool, tip, first action can you give us that, that maybe we start with or we keep in mind? What, what's a taddy tip? Um, I'll give you a couple. One is get out of your office and talk to real people. And those could be your actual customers or they could be Customers are just, you know, people, forget saying customers, though could just be human beings, either who are current customers or in some ways more interesting are people who you feel like, why aren't they our customers <laughs> or people who used to be our customers or people who are brand new customers. Those are actually the two most interesting populations often, which is not your best customers, although that can be interesting too, but is people who are your new customers or people who just left you. And the reason those people are interesting is because they have all exerted some energy to make a change. And so when you talk to people who are just happy, satisfied customers, they have very little to tell you. But if somebody used to solve a problem one way or try to create experience in one way, And for whatever set of reasons, they decide to switch from that particular approach to another one. They're sharing with you what led them to make that switch. The behavior around switching is always rich with meaning and interesting. And why? Because there's energy there. And energy for progress is the touchstone of innovation opportunity. And so my advice to folks, you don't need budget. You just need time and humility is to find a population of people that you're interested in learning more about. The second last piece of that is don't talk to them about what they would like or what they would aspire to do. People are wonderfully well-intentioned and entirely unreliable about talking about aspirations. You know, it's like we all want to save more money and hit the gym more often and spend less money on Uber and coffee and stuff. But that's not interesting. It's not helpful. It might be interesting. It's not helpful. Where people are really reliable and really helpful is telling us about a specific recent experience that, that they have personally undertaken or been through. 
where they've exerted agency. And so if you can talk to people about recent experiences and really get down to that almost like documentary movie level of understanding, you want a sample size of one. You don't want to be asking people, what do you usually do? What do you often do? No. You want to talk about last Tuesday? Tell me about that Tuesday morning. Don't tell me how you usually buy office supplies. Tell me about the last time you ordered office supplies for your company. Because it's in those granular details that don't get smoothed out by generalizations where the anomalies actually lie, what Clay is looking for, and the little hacks and little workarounds that people may have just incorporated into their lives and processes where you could actually say, hey, wait a minute, that's funny, right? Not that's weird. That's funny. We can actually use that complexity, that wrinkle to innovate around and create value. So that's the, the, the cheap tip is that most managers don't spend enough time harvesting stories of individual people in specific circumstances struggling to make progress. You put those three things together and you are going to do what I think is the most exciting aspect of innovation, or at least one of them is to look at phenomena that you've looked at before and to see things that you've never seen before. Amazing. I'm speechless, Taddy. Every time we talk about innovation, you're always so very open about how you think, but it always has a practicality around it. There's a framework to all of your thinking, which you feel like actually you can go out and do it. We typically make things we don't understand sound complicated. And if you just unpack the complexity, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, the great chief justice, you know, simplicity on the other side of complexity is priceless. Simplicity is priceless. Taddy, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on Tribe Talks. Bye-bye. Thanks, Lisa. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Tribe Talks. We'd love to get your feedback. And if you have any questions or a great story to share, just email us at hello at tribecalledhumans.com.au.